You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. Well, good morning. Time of confession. Back when I uh, was doing this on a full-time basis a number of years ago under Hill Country Church, I made it a habit of doing my study all week and then getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and, and uh, just letting, letting the Spirit flow and write out my sermon. And, and rarely did I have any problems. Uh, with, uh, with Covenant, I've been trying to uh, back it up a little bit, try to get my sermon all done on a Friday or a, or a Saturday. And uh, I had one of those weeks where uh, just the, the time would not allow, and I was like, hey, no problem. I'll just go back to my old habits, 5 o'clock. So I was up at 5 o'clock this morning, chipper, had coffee, ready to go, and, uh, and then sat down and then uh, realized that, uh, man, things aren't jiving. And so um, I was writing. I, the reason why I was late is because I was writing right up till. Uh, about uh, five to ten this morning. So, uh, what follows is is uh, where I uh, painstakingly, in my own mind, led, and I pray that uh, you uh, would get something out of the sermon that follows. Um, I hope it makes more sense to you than it did me as I was writing it. Um, it 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 seems to me that it's a bit of a dog's breakfast. So, uh, with that being said, I, I sincerely pray that uh, that you find it uh, you find it somewhat helpful in some manner or other. Uh, what, what it led me to in the end, it was one of those things where even as an introduction, I, I was struggling with an introduction. That's okay. You go through the, you go the scriptures you, you, and, and usually the introduction and the conclusion follow what, uh, what the, what the text leads you to. And, uh, and so I was thankful that, that by the end of, of the uh, scriptures, I, I could write out an introduction and, uh, and, and had a title. And the title that, that really popped out at me, the, the scripture that popped out at me this morning, was the simple question, what are you seeking? We're going to see where that comes from in just a minute. But one of, the, one of the issues I think we're running into is that our society today is one that is, uh, to, to put it lightly, confused. We're confused. We're definitely lost. And it seems to me we're definitely a wandering culture. More than ever, it seems as though the people are searching. People are searching, but... They're, they're searching with blindfolds on. Uh, we have those that are trying to find meaning in life by doing what? Deconstructing everything around us. Tear it all down. We'll find meaning in the tearing down, if that makes any sense. Our society today is working very hard at tearing down history. We're tearing down language. We're importing an ideology that has not worked in the past and will not work moving forward. We can sit here and shake our heads at the sheer stupidity of it. All I know I do from time to time, sometimes even sinfully. Um, but there is a reason behind it. More than one, likely. These people that are involved in tearing down our society are looking for something. Instead of finding meaning by building on top of what has worked for the past 2,000 years, they want to, and you've heard this term by Trudeau and Biden and many other world leaders, you've heard the term build back better. Build back better. But in order to build back better, what must happen? They need to destroy that which is in the way. 
namely the institutions, the very institutions that brought us to the health, wealth, and prosperity that we're at today. Uh, one of those institutions, of course, has been the Judeo-Christian church, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Our cultural elites are working overtime to overthrow this foundation and replace it. Why? Because they have lost all meaning to their lives. They have rejected the meaning, they have rejected the ethic, and they have rejected the ideology passed down to them from their forefathers and have embraced a new path, one that is at its foundation a rejection of God. And when you reject God, you throw away the blessings that come with Him. Even the unbeliever who hasn't completely lost his mind looks around and he knows that something is terribly wrong. But he cannot articulate any justification for his stance. This is called an apologetic opportunity when we run into those types, and we are running into them more and more. Jesus today asks a pointed question to his very first two disciples. It seems uh, when you first read it, it seems like a rather innocuous uh, question. But it is a question that every person asks sooner or later. How we answer that question will dictate whether or not we go with the cultural flow or we find an old and straight path back to sanity. So with that, I'm going to read the text and then we'll, uh, we'll have a word in prayer. So if you turn with me to John chapter 1 and verse 35, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter to verse 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together as a, as a church body, uh, one that can uh, still come, even though uh, underground a little bit, maybe a little illegally, but uh, Lord, we are doing our best to uh, be uh, obedient to your calling to us to gather together as a church and to sing together, sing your praises, to pray together, and to uh, hear your word uh, preached. And so, Lord, I I thank you for this opportunity, and I would ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and soften our hearts, that we may follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Verses 35 to 36. The Apostle John continues with the ministry of John the Baptist. He's not done with him yet. Who, if we remember from the prologue, he was appointed uh, a prophet by God to proclaim the coming of Christ. He was a witness whose job was to prepare the people of Israel for their coming Messiah. The setting is John is standing with his disciples. Okay, just picture it. John's standing with his disciples. It's been another long day. He's been baptizing in the Jordan. Uh, he's been calling people to repentance. He, he probably picked more fights with the Pharisees or whoever else wanted to argue with him. And along comes Jesus, seemingly alone at this point. And John once again makes a point to point out Christ to his disciples. Behold, he says, behold. It's kind of an archaic word in the English language, behold. If we actually went around saying that, we'd sound weird. But what does, what does it mean to behold something? Seems like, uh, as I said, a bit archaic, but, but it is a word of emphasis. Another way of putting it is it's a command. It's a look. It's a stop what you're doing and look. Behold. Right? There he is again. You can just picture John. Remember what I said yesterday? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? There he is. You know the guy said that you can make your sins clean before God? You can stand before God, your sins are forgiven? That's the guy. Stop what you're doing, that's the guy. Right? You all remember that? Well, there he is again. You can almost hear John the Baptist asking them, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There he is. The two disciples standing there hear him. Maybe they grab their coach, they, they, they grab their lunch boxes, and they followed Christ. They followed after Jesus. Mission accomplished, right? John the Baptist, well done. 
we're going to see that John's mission is not over, that he will continue to point people to Jesus until his dying day. But his first two disciples have successfully left him and followed after the one that he's been pointing towards. And I just wanted to point out a couple things regarding John's ministry here. And as stated just a minute ago, John had a ministry. His very purpose in ministry was he was called by God to proclaim the coming of Christ. His life was set before him. Everything from his message to his clothing to his diet was set before him. He was set aside as an instrument of God to accomplish a task. And most importantly, the task wasn't about him. It was not John's job to build a massive following. I'll bet you that was a temptation. It wasn't John's job to bring a ton of attention to himself in order to bask in his own glory. He was the guy who got people's attention. As we've already heard, he was the guy that said hard things. Right? Hard truths to people in order to shake them out of their slumber, in order to shake them from their self-righteousness. That was his job. He could gather a crowd. I'm, I'm betting John the Baptist was what we today would call probably a little on the charismatic side, right? He could draw a crowd. And certainly he did, and he did over and over again, but for what purpose? So he could show off? So he could be remembered in the annals of history? No, although he was. Was he building a nice little kingdom for himself? Not at all. His job was to point others to Christ. He built a following in order to lose it. He understood better than anyone that it was not about himself, but everything was about Christ. And this seems like a good place to make an application. So the question I have right off the hop is, is life about you? Is life about you? How do you view your ministry? Do you even think you have a ministry? Let's start there, Christian. Do you even understand that you have a ministry? If you are a Christian, you have a ministry. What is your ministry? Where does God have you? Who has he brought into your life? What has he given you? And are you building his kingdom with it? Or are you building your own? Are we bringing attention to ourselves? Pointing out our blessings? Our blessings? Look how wonderful my life is. Look at all my stuff. Right? Or are we pointing to the giver of those blessings? We have to be constantly reminded. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's all about Christ. Don't forget your mission, dear Christian. This lesson is especially applicable today as we in the church get grandiose ideas. We have grandiose ideas for covenant Presbyterian. We have grandiose ideas. But we must remember that it's not about us. We have goals here, and the minute we lose focus of the who and why we're doing what we're doing, we have lost the script. It's easy to do, and it happens all the time. We have often 
seen pastors and churches that have lost the script. It's about the name on the building, right? Or it's about the name on the church sign below the name of the church. Who's the pastor? Oh, he's a big name, right? Maybe it's about the denomination. Maybe it's about how witty and wonderful the pastor is. I belong to churches that have been there. It used to be a popularity contest to go to a certain church in town. How many times has a well-spoken pastor built up a body of believers only to see the body diminish drastically once that pastor finds, usually, here's the cynic in me coming out, the, the pastor usually finds greener and richer pastures that they are called to elsewhere. And when that happens, do we ask ourselves the question, what was the foundation of the church? What was the foundation of the success of that church? The apparent, we'll use that in quotations, the apparent success of the church. What was the foundation? There's an old saying that goes, what you win them with is what you will keep them with. I'm sure you've all heard that. If you build a church, if you build a school, if you build a business on the charisma and charm and wit of the leader, what happens when that leader inevitably leaves? And they all leave for one reason or another. We know the answer, don't we? It is vital that in our personal lives and in our corporate lives, we keep Christ as our focus. He is the rock and he is the reason. So that means for those of you that this is home for you, that this is our church body, that every ministry that we do, we have to keep Christ as our focus. He is the focus. The second we get the focus on anything else, we start to lose the script we've already started to wear away at our foundation, which isn't going to last, right? The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus from verse 37. And that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. Worst strategy in the world if you're trying to build your own kingdom, but, God, but, but John was building another kingdom. Isaiah 52 and verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. John was blessed. Yes, now get this. I thought of this this morning. One of the few cogent thoughts I had in my head. John was blessed. But John was beheaded for his troubles. Maybe we as a church should rethink what it means to be blessed by God. But uh, that's a point for another day, I think. I want to focus just for a minute on the word follow. Often in John's gospel, when we see the word follow, and we're going to see it many times throughout his gospel, it means to follow as a disciple. This isn't necessarily the case here, but what we have are two gentlemen who are quite literally walking behind, following Jesus. We also know that these two become key members of the early days of Christ's ministry. They become apostles of the church. I really, really wanted to go off on a tangent talking about what apostleship means, but we, that was too far out of the way for what the text demands, so maybe we'll get that to another day. They became apostles of the church, and here we have the record of the first steps of their faith. Every journey has a beginning, and this is their beginning. I'm sure they had no idea at this point what they were getting themselves into. But their teacher, John, 
pointed them to Jesus. And here we have them at this point stalking Jesus, quite literally, quietly following behind. And Jesus, of course, being Jesus, knows he's being followed. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. That's verses 38 to 39a. Jesus, with his spidey senses tingling, turns and asks a most profound question. What are you seeking? A more blunt version of this question would be something akin to, What do you want? I prefer the previous iteration because it uses the Greek word zeteo, which has a connotation of serious effort. What are you seeking? Right? It's a serious question. And what is more is that it's a question everyone answers at some point in their lives. Let me ask you, what are you seeking? We all have an answer to this question whether we know it or not. Most people today skate by in life not pondering the deeper questions. Ask them this question and you're likely to get probably a pithy answer. What am I seeking? Uh, I don't know, a, a, a good bacon and egger. But in all seriousness, when we dig uh, even a little deeper, or even if we just watch them for a while, we're talking about those that don't really have an answer, when we watch them for a little while, we can see what drives them, what they are seeking. Everyone's seeking something. The saddest part is that for most people, they seek after that which is fleeting. Read Ecclesiastes. They live according to Ecclesiastes, but without God. It's all vanity. They go from one pleasure to another without thought or concern about the meaninglessness of it all. From time to time, in moments of clarity, which I believe we all have, they will contemplate this very serious question. They will contemplate, what am I seeking? What's the point? Why am I here? Usually it ends up going, even if they live generally happy lives, there are moments of dread, there are moments of unhappiness. Why am I so unhappy? Why do I feel so unfulfilled with life? Is this all there is? We are all seeking the same thing. And at the end of the question, I believe there is only one answer that will satisfy. What am I seeking? Same thing as you. We're all seeking meaning. We're all seeking meaning. There has to be a point of it all. And thankfully for Andrew and John, the first two disciples, the two brand new shiny disciples, they were following the very person who could give them the meaning that they were looking for. This is, I believe, uh, the same question we all contemplate, especially when we are introduced to the good news of the gospel. When someone points us to Christ, we inevitably, inevitably have to answer the question, what am I seeking? Of course, the text backs up my assertion when the response from the new disciples is, Rabbi, where are you staying? That was what they were really, really asking. This isn't the first time we read in our Bibles interactions with Christ with questions and answers that seemingly don't go together. Jesus asks them, 
what are you seeking? And they come back with, where are you hanging out? Seems a little underwhelming, doesn't it? That's what you're seeking? That's what you want to know? Seriously? Maybe the context will help us out a little. We know that it's getting late in the day. It's about 4 p.m. It says the 10th hour. That's about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And being aware of this, rather than diving into great theological issues then and there, they preferred to have a private conversation with him wherever he was staying. One of the most interesting things about this question is that the word staying here is the same word used by John elsewhere that is translated as abiding. This is a possibly a precursor to one of the major themes that John has regarding Jesus, and that is, what does it mean to abide? Chapter 15 of John's Gospel is where Jesus speaks of being the vine, and they are the branches. And it could be that John is using the language with some symbolism here. Most, most commentators believe so. After all, we know that Jesus doesn't have a home during his ministry. Luke 9 and 58 says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So where does Jesus abide? He abides in his Father's love. John 15.10 That's where home is. That's where home is. In the Father's love. And Christ promises that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples. Jesus says to them, come and you will see. The invitation to follow Christ is presented and to the delight of John the Baptist, no doubt, they followed. This is an invitation to all those that don't know him. The invitation is to come and see. Taste the goodness of God. Taste the glories of his mercy and grace. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So I just wanted to give a, sh a quick note here, a short note. John never mentions the other of the two uh, of the original disciples, uh, which has med led many to believe that it was actually John himself, the author of the book. We don't know a lot about Andrew other than he was one of the first disciples of Jesus and he was also the brother of Peter. And what's interesting is that the few times that we do hear about Andrew, surprisingly enough, is when he brings people to Christ. He introduces his brother, uh, Peter, Simon, to Christ. He tries to introduce a group of Greek men to Christ. He was there. He was the one that brought the boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus. He always seems to be in the middle of bringing people to Christ. Tells us that Andrew was one of the first effective evangelists. He wanted people to know Christ. And we don't know much of anything else about him, but every time he's mentioned, he's bringing someone to Christ. So wherever Jesus took Andrew and John, they must have had a theological discussion. And by the end of it, Andrew was off to tell his brother Simon. Right? And what does he say? He comes up to Simon and he says, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. John the Baptist has been announcing the arrival of the Lamb of God. 
It took a day or two before Andrew and John caught on, but they eventually did. And after an evening conversation with Jesus, Andrew seems to have understood and couldn't contain his excitement. He runs off to find his brother Simon to tell him the good news. We have found the Messiah. Could you imagine? We have found the Messiah. Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. The Jews have been promised an anointed one from the days of David. We can read in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 51. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. The entirety of Jeremiah 33 is also in keeping with this promise of an everlasting king on the throne of David. And while it's fair to say that generally speaking, the Jews did not entirely understand what the coming Messiah meant, especially in a political sense. They were looking at the Messiah in much more of a political view as opposed to uh, what Jesus actually came and accomplished. Andrew did understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And what was his reaction? More importantly, what was his reaction? He ran and told his brother Simon. Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. Then what happens? Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse 42. So just a quick note on this. Jesus declares to Simon that he is what he is going to make of him. We don't want to get this misunderstood in thinking that... that uh, Jesus is prognosticating somehow that, that uh, yes, Peter is going to be, or sorry, Simon's going to be called Cephas. This wasn't a prediction, but rather a declaration of what Jesus was going to do in the life of Simon. Cephas means Peter, which means rock. Peter would have a prominent place among the apostles, as we know. He would be a major force in the early church. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Well, this is interesting. This also helps us, I think, going back to which Beth, which Bethany. Remember all the way back to the beginning of John when we were talking about which Bethany he was potentially at? This, to me, indicates that he was in the northern part where they believe there was a Bethany on the east side of the Jordan, right by the Sea of Galilee, because it says the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Galilee was in the northern reaches of Israel. It was considered like a buffer zone between Israel, what we call Israel proper, and Syria. It was the region that was relatively, we could call it insignificant. That'd be a nice way of putting it. Galilee was insignificant in the life of most Israelites. Um, if you want to be a little more politically incorrect, you could call it the outback of Israel. We will see this in the attitude of Nathanael when Philip tells him about Jesus of where? Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is, well, not only does he say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But we have to remember that Nathanael's from Galilee. He's already from the backwoods of, of uh, Israel. And then on top of that, being the snob he is, he turns around and says, Nazareth? That hole? Like, so not only are you in a backwoods outback region, but then there's the, the outback of the outback, which is Nazareth. Right? Jesus is pulling his apostles from what we would call the nether regions of Israel. And he himself was from the outback of the country. 
which, of course, is quite the opposite of what most Jews would have expected. It certainly isn't how we think, is it? We fall into the same trap. We tend to expect more from the people in what we would consider important cities or regions and less of those from our own outbacks. In Calgary, we have an expression uh, on, on the east side, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're east of, of, uh, uh, of Deerfoot Trail, well, you're already into places called the hood, and then you can find hoods inside of hoods. And, and so even in cities, we've got our little outbacks, right? And so uh, generally speaking, we expect, for whatever reason, we expect less from, from the people of those regions And we can often affix in our own minds a rank of importance due to a person by their location or stature. Um, I love listening to Paul Washer. He's one of my favorite preachers to listen to. And and, uh, one of the things that I remember, um, somebody asked him, and I guess he gets asked this quite often, is is, uh, uh, who do you think is the best preacher? Who's your favorite preacher? And Paul Washer, being Paul Washer, says, quite bluntly, you've never heard of him. See, Paul Washer knows what the person's expecting. He's expecting a John MacArthur or a, or a Alistair Begg or some other high and mighty that, that's doing the Mark Dever, all, all, the, all the big names, right? All that Mark Dever, he sure can't preach. Paul Washer doesn't bite. And I think he's being honest. You've never heard of him. He preaches in a tiny mountain village in Peru. Not the answer most would have expected. But when we study the word of God, we see how he makes great the lowly. He chooses that which is weak and makes them strong. He doesn't operate by the shallow and predictable rule book that we as humanity tend to follow. Philip said to him, come and see. Do you see a trend yet? Let me introduce you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not sure. Come and see. Come and see. We then have an interesting exchange between Nathaniel and Jesus. Nathaniel hasn't even met Jesus yet, and yet Jesus, seeing him coming, preempts the conversation with, Behold! Look! Look here! An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus first identifies Nathanael as an Israelite. No big deal, right? I mean, they're in Israel, technically. We need to remember where Galilee was. Northern Israel. The outback. It was also the place where the original conquest failed. They did not kick out all the Canaanites. The Israelites failed in their mission, and Galilee was a mixed bag of ethnicities. Yet Jesus identified Nathanael as an Israelite, a true Israelite. But just in case you aren't impressed yet, Jesus calls him basically what we would say a straight shooter. Here's a straight shooter. This is a compliment of sorts, I suppose, but it's a description of someone's character. Those that are straight shooters, those that are of no deceit, are usually what we'd call standouts because there aren't that many of them. People are all too often careful with their words, careful of words, especially in today's politically correct climate. They don't always come out 100%. 
They don't always tell exactly what they mean, if you know what I mean. Those without deceit, or a straight shooter as I've described here, are people who say what they mean and mean what they say. Unapologetically, by the way. It's just the way they are. Take them or leave it. Here we have Jesus meeting Nathaniel for the first time, and we have Jesus telling Nathaniel, I know who you are. Nathaniel asks, How do you know me? Seems like a reasonable question. How do you know me? Jesus answers, Nathaniel, even before Philip went to go get you, while you were sitting under the fig tree over there, I saw you. Jesus knew Nathaniel. Just like he knows you. I find comfort in the meme. I'm sure maybe any of you are on social media. Maybe you've seen this meme. But I find it both funny and comforting that uh, it says that the meme says something along the lines of, Don't worry, God knew your faults before he saved you and he saved you anyways. Nathaniel was so impressed that right then and there he was convinced of the truth of the matter. Come and see indeed. He came, he saw, he heard Jesus, and then he declared, You are the King of Israel. And I read that and I just go, that's amazing. That is amazing. But what's, what's even funnier is that Jesus seems somewhat surprised. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That's all it took? That's all it took. Man, you haven't seen anything yet. Verse 51 is something that I'm not going to dive into here because the meaning's obscure. Biblical scholars cannot agree in the slightest about what Jesus is referring to here. But needless to say, the point being made to Nathaniel and to us in reading the account, verse 51, let's just have a quick look at it. Jesus is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You think you're impressed now? Wait. Right? The point being made to Nathaniel and to us reading the account is that he hasn't even begun to see what Jesus has in store. That much is true. So we started this sermon today in conclusion... We started the sermon today with an assertion that we all eventually have to, ask, have to ask ourselves the question, what are we seeking? More than ever, it seems we have two potential paths to follow. This will sound familiar to those of you that read your Bible. The Bible talks about the wide path and the narrow path. Our society has spent years abandoning the narrow path in order to take the wide path. And the Christian cultural capital is starting to run out. We are starting to see the consequences of that very, very poor choice that we as a society have made, and we are just beginning to pay for it. How do we turn the ship around? How do we get back on the straight and narrow path? Well, let me tell you, it starts with you, and it starts with me. How do we, you and I, answer this question? What are you seeking? What am I seeking? I think it says somewhere in Matthew chapter 28, what? 
seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Our meaning comes from God. We were made in His image and likeness. Eternity has been written on all of our hearts. Whether you're a Christian or not, eternity is written on your hearts. Jesus invites sinners to come and see. And if you don't know Christ, I implore you, come and see. Give your life to Him. I promise you, you won't regret it. He will never let you down. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And if you are a Christian, remember what He has done for you, that there is no salvation. There is no way to the Father but by Him. Continue to walk with Him and share Him with others. Be an Andrew. Be a witness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together. We thank You for the message of sharing the Gospel. We thank You that what started off as two disciples has turned into millions and maybe even billions over the last 2,000 years. We look forward to the day where we get to uh, praise You as a universal church all together. What an amazing day that's going to be. And we just get a taste of that here as we sing your praises amongst our small group here, that we partake of the Lord's Supper here together, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we are all looking forward to. Lord, give us the strength and courage to follow you, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.